Well, good morning, everyone. It's great to see you again. Glad that you've come here to be with us today. And we're right in the middle of this series called Questions for Jesus. And what we've been doing is trying to look at some of the most common questions about Jesus' identity, about Christianity. Um, today we're going to look at this question, why take the Bible seriously? And we're really bringing these questions and his and Jesus' words to bear on um, the answers that are presented in our culture. And so I'm excited that you've all come so we could dig a little further into this. When you compare the list of best-selling books that have, you know, across um, all books to have ever been written, um, the Bible overwhelmingly tops the chart of bestsellers. Um, besides the Bible, here's the top three um, best-selling books worldwide. Number one is Lord of the Rings. This is besides the Bible. With 150 million copies sold, Lord of the Rings, by Tolkien. Um, that's a lot of that's a lot of you know Hobbit fans and elf fans and dwarfs and I mean and I, I'm I'm a fan I, I enjoyed um, the movies I didn't read the books but <laughs> I'll be honest but uh, the second is this with 140 million sold The Little Prince haven't read this one either you know um, it's it's a French book Le Petit something. <laughs> Le Petit, how how do you say prince? Someone said it last service. Nobody here speaks French? Okay, well, I think it's prince. I don't know what it is, but anyway. Harry Potter, number three on the list. 107 million sold. Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone. I thought it was the Sorcerer's Stone, but I guess before it was released in the U.S., this was the title that that it had. And 107 million sold. So between these three, you know, you've got, do the math, 397 million, I think. Um, that's a lot of these books. Now, the Bible is widely regarded um, to be the best-selling book of all time. Guinness World Book of Records actually estimates that 5 billion copies of the Bible have been sold. 5 billion. So there's not even a... <laughs> A, a close second. Um, it has survived bans and burnings and ridicule and criticism throughout centuries and people trying to discredit it and stamp it out, but its impact just continues on and on and on. I took a course in high school called Bible as Literature, and I don't know if you took a, a, a course in college or high school that was like Bible lit or um, Basically, it's, it's just examining the book in terms of its literary qualities and style. And, and my professor in high school for my Bible literature class was a former pastor turned atheist. And he would use this class in order to, to shake up all the Christians in the class. And he would, um, he kind of, there's actually a, a movie that's real similar that I'm going to use clips of next week, but I think the movie's called God's Not Dead. And so you kind of see a similar thing happening in this, in this movie as what he would do in class, which is he would try to figure out if any, who, who the Christians were, and then he'd pick on you all year. And he'd try to just point out the holes. And as a young person, I was like, I didn't have an answer to a lot of the questions that he would come at me with. And so um, it would raise a lot of questions. So, but in our culture, the Bible is still a very, very popular book. People are trying to discredit it. Um, but according to a study conducted in just last year, 88% of households in America own a Bible. So 
almost 9 out of 10 households in America own a Bible. Um, however, only 37% of those read it once a week or more. 56% of American remain pro-Bible. And so what that means is they believe that the Bible is the inspired word of God with no errors. However, in the last three years, this next slide shows that the percentage of skeptics is really, it has doubled to 19% in the last three years. And so um, there's a deadlock tie between skeptics and those who are engaged with the Bible, which means that you know, those engaged with the Bible mean, means that they read the Bible at least four times a week, and they believe that the Bible is the inspired word of God. But there's this deadlock tie, and the rate at which the skeptics are, is increasing, this just shows us that uh, the number of people who take the Bible seriously is in decline. And so in the, in the years ahead, if you are someone who takes the Bible seriously and believes the Bible to be the word of God, you will be in a declining minority according to what the studies are predicting. Um, in this series, what we're trying to do is we're trying to take our questions to, to find out what does Jesus say about these issues. And so the question we're looking at this morning is, what was Jesus' view of Scripture? And so let's pray once again before we move any further. Father, again, we just we pause and we ask you to um, open up our hearts and our, um, our minds to um, the Bible. And the claim is that the Bible is the Word of God and that it is eternal and it is truth, and it sets a, a standard of living, and it, it leads us. And so, God, I pray that you would speak to us through it this morning. Help us to get a firmer grasp on what, um, on how to, um, if we walk with you, how to really defend our, our um, belief that the Bible is authoritative. And if, if there are people here that are still kind of sorting this whole issue out, Lord, I pray that you would um, answer questions that they have come with this morning and use this, Lord, to draw us all closer to you. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So this question, what was Jesus' view of the Bible? What was Jesus' view of the Scripture? This is an important thing. And over the past two weeks, we've really been looking at um, a few other questions. So two weeks ago on Easter, we looked at the question of, did Jesus claim to be God? Because a lot of people say, Jesus was just a good moral teacher. He, didn't, he was nothing more than that. And so on Easter, we looked at all that Jesus said about himself, and he clearly claimed to be God. And then he proved it by rising from the dead. We, if you weren't here for that, I invite you to go check it out on our website um, from two weeks ago. Last week we looked at the question, is Jesus the only way to have a relationship with the Father? Like, is Jesus the only way to God? Can I, is there other paths to get to God? Or is he just, you know, or is he truly the only way? And so, if you conclude that Jesus is God, as Christ followers do, then the things that he said about the Bible really ought to matter. And so that's why we're looking at, what does Jesus say? Once again, so here's what he said. This is found in Matthew chapter 5. He's on a mountainside overlooking the sea. There's a large crowd of people following him, and his disciples draw closer to him as he sits, or actually as he yeah, sits down, and he starts getting ready to talk. And he, he gives this sermon, it's called the Sermon on the Mount, starts addressing relationships, um, categories of people, and, and what, what it's like to have a life that's blessed by God and, and just goes through all these different topics in the Sermon on the Mount. And in chapter 5, verse 17 through 19, he, he reads this, or he says this, Do not think, Jesus says, that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. Really, he's talking about when he says the law or the prophets, that's the authority and the principles of the Old Testament. Um, the New Testament had not been written yet. So when Jesus is saying this, he's not 
he's not able to really hold up the Bible like this and say, hey, you know, we're going to put this and scrutinize this today. He's really talking about the, the Old Testament, which in our Bible is the 39, the first 39 books. That's called the Old Testament. So when he says this, he's saying, don't think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. He's talking about the Old Testament. He says, I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And then he says in verse 18, for truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. This word iota, it's the smallest letter, okay? It's the smallest letter. The, the, the idea of the dot, that's the smallest stroke of a letter. And so what he's saying is, none of those things will pass away. These things are eternal. Scripture is eternal. It will stand the test of time. Heaven and earth, those are going to pass away. He's saying, God's word is eternal. He even goes on to say this in verse 19. Look at verse 19. It reads, Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Okay? Whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments, meaning like whoever loosens or unbinds or unfastens, like detaches ideas, verses from Scripture, whoever does that, will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them, meaning who holds up the, you know, God's word, whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. He puts his mark of approval here on the Old Testament. He's saying, look, I'm not, I'm not coming to wipe this out. I approve of it. I approve of the Old Testament. He's, he's giving his, his mark of approval, a stamp of approval. He believed that the Old Testament, the first 39 books was the inspired Word of God. In fact, he would stand on the authority of the Old Testament at many points, and he'd just quote verses. When he was battling the devil in the Judean wilderness, he was being tempted by the devil, and the devil kept bringing these temptations to him in three different um, ways. And with each temptation, Jesus responds with, it is written. It is written. And he quotes something from the Old Testament. He's quoting some verses, or a verse from Psalm and two from Deuteronomy. And you can, you can read about that in Matthew chapter 4, that temptation account. But Jesus, he often just would recite or refer back to many of the Old Testament verses during his three-year ministry. We put an insert in your, um, in your bulletin. And so it, it just says, uh, it's got a two-sided insert. So on one side it says, Jesus' reference to the Old Testament scriptures. Pull that out just for a second. And you'll see Matthew 4.4 4 on the left is Jesus' words. This is the, to the temptation from the devil. You know, Jesus is hungry. The devil offers to turn, you know, turn things into food for him. Or, you know, why don't you just make this food, actually? Let's look at Matthew 4.4. 4. The tempter came and said to him, If you're the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Since you're, since you're God, make these, turn these things into, turn these rocks into bread. But he answered them, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Well, Jesus is quoting from the Old Testament. He's quoting Deuteronomy 8.3, which reads, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. See, the, the authority is there in the Old Testament, and he just stands on the authority of the Old Testament over and over. You've heard that it was said, you should not commit adultery. He's citing one of the commandments, which is Exodus 20.14, you should not commit adultery. Matthew 5.38, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. That's Leviticus 24.20, fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. 
and goes on. And so you can kind of check this out. This is not the uh, complete list. This is just, what is it, six of them. But there are many places where Jesus referred to the Old Testament because he saw that this was God's word. Now, when it comes to the New Testament, the New Testament had not been written yet. And so we have to look at something he promised to his followers that really laid the foundation for um, its credibility and his confidence in what they were going to write, which would become the New Testament. Look at what he says in John 14, verse 26. He says, but the helper, he's speaking to his disciples just before his death. He says, the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things, and he will bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. This verse is, is you know, it's often, we look at the fact that the Holy Spirit comes, and he's, he can be the helper for those that are Christ followers. He comes, and he comes to, to live inside of us, to bring God's power into our lives and strength into our lives, to give us um, to help our minds connect to the truth. But for those earliest disciples, this is actually Jesus um, approving what they would write of him because the Holy Spirit will come and give them the help they need to remember what Jesus said. Now this is very important, that their letters and that their, the, the Gospels that they wrote were accurate and they weren't just, um, you know, like you or, you or I maybe reporting on an incident that we saw, but this needed to be exactly what had happened. This needs to match up. And so Jesus, he said this, the Holy Spirit's going to come. He's going to give you the ability to remember all that I've said to you. Now, the New Testament was written by the disciples, or by the apostles, over the next 60 years through their writings and through their letters. Um, and this was just people who had been with Jesus in ministry, people that had um, the really qualification was they needed to have seen Jesus alive. They needed to had the only exception really was um, that they didn't walk with him in his ministry would be Paul that we just don't have as, but we, Jesus appears to Paul, authored many of the New Testament letters. But the big issue is that these writings needed to be from eyewitnesses, people who could give eyewitness accounts. And Jesus said, look, God would, the Spirit of God would inspire your writings. And that this really gives these books, the New Testament books, 27 books in the New Testament, Jesus' approval and the authority. Everything hinges, though, on Jesus' identity. If he's God, then really the Bible is the inspired word of God. It's a major contradiction for us to say, hey, I follow Christ, but I don't obey the Bible. And I disregard what it has to say because Jesus stood on the authority of God's word. And so another question that really that we're bringing to him is this. Second one, why should I take the Bible seriously? This is really a real practical question for us. Why should we take the Bible seriously? Jesus said this, that it's this, it is really the solid foundation for life. Matthew 7 is one of my favorite pictures in Scripture of a, of a life that God establishes. And it's really a promise. It's Matthew 7, verse 24 through 25. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, he says this. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. Jesus is saying, when you hear my words and you do them, that's like you're building your house on something that is rock solid. 
And pressure from life reveals whether or not our foundation, the thing that we're building our life upon, is rock solid or if it's cracked and faulty. Pressure in life will reveal your foundation. You might be going through pressure right now, and your foundation, you're, and you're, you're realizing, wow, I'm so grateful that I'm building my life on something that is rock solid. Or you may be saying, I need to start building my life on something more solid than I have been because I see the cracks, and it's, it's barely holding me up. Um, I was reminded just yesterday of how true these verses really are over the long haul. Uh, I was at a wedding. And I was at a wedding of the daughter of, of a friend of mine who I was able to see her really kind of uh, being raised while we were at uh, Church in the Valley in Diamond Bar. And I think when I, let's see, I don't even know how old she is. She's probably 23 now. But I think I met her when she was probably six or seven years old. I just remember her, this little girl, kind of smiley, giggly, bubbly little girl, about seven, eight years old. Her name is Sammy, and that was her nickname. But Samantha got married yesterday, and we were at this wedding, and we got to catch up with many of our old friends from our old church in Diamond Bar. And it really was, in many ways, an encouraging picture of this verse, for the most part. Um, because there was so much encouragement as I catch up with people who, who I know are building their life on the solid rock of Scripture, and, and, and God holds their lives up, even through storms. And what I've known is in the last eight years after we left, or seven-plus years after we left, there have been many storms that have hit those people and their families and their children. And, and, and many of those folks are still standing. Their lives are still established. It's not that there's not pain. It's not that there hasn't been many tears shed. But when the pressure comes, um, you know, it reveals the foundation of our lives. And so there was really, as me and Erica kind of drove away, there was really kind of a, that was so encouraging. Just like, um, that, gives, that gives us a lot of hope. That if, if we'll continue to be faithful, help people get a grip on God's word and build their lives on it, the blessing comes in the next decade or the next couple of decades. We don't see it immediately, but it's encouraging to experience that. And then there's also people that you meet, that we all meet, where pressure is there and the cracks are there and their life are falling apart. And right now, you and I, we are building our lives on something. And... If you don't choose your foundation materials carefully, it would be disastrous. Right now you're building. You're building your life. Many of you are building a family life. And so do not skimp on the foundation materials. Don't skimp. You know, you can like stretch. I've done home improvement things, and you can skimp on material, and you pay for it. One time I skimped on glue when I was laying down a floor, a wood floor. And I was trying to stretch. I didn't want to have to go buy another bucket of like $80 bucket glue and i'm like i'm just going to stretch this out well it the glue the the floor started separating because i skimped on some of the materials don't don't skimp on your materials you're building a, you're building a life and the what he's saying is the pressure is going to come the storm will come the rain will come and so jesus he makes a powerful promise with this picture everyone then who hears these words of mine whoever hears these words of mine and does them it's hearing them and doing them will be like the wise man who built his house on a rock. So really it's obedience to the Bible is really the best future planning you can do. We get really caught up in future planning. You know, you can future plan financially and you can, you can put your kids in the, the best 
opportunities and the right schools and all these things, and that may not be enough. Jesus is talking about something um, that really has the ability for you and for your children uh, to build a life on. And, and what he's saying is don't just come, don't just listen, because that won't be enough. That doesn't make the difference. We have to do what he says to experience the benefits. It's, and it's, it's truly a big book. You get to know God, and you're like, you might be thinking, it's such a big book. I'm kind of freaking out. Jesus is saying if I don't build my life on his words and on the, on the word of God, then my life might fall apart. Don't get paranoid. I, what I would say is obey what you do know. The things you're learning, obey the things you're learning. Obey what you, what you hear. Obey what you read. Put those things into practice. Obey what you do know. Dig in. Open it up. Begin to build that life. The habit of building a life foundation cannot wait because the storms are going to come. It's just a matter of time. And when they come, your and my foundation will be revealed. And this, really, this will hold you up, is what he's saying. The alternative is frightening. Look at the alternative. Verse 26 and 27. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell. And great was the fall of it. He desires that we would have lives that would be supported. And we can't use the excuse, you don't understand me, I'm too busy, I don't have time. The truth is, we, we make time for the things that we most value. We, we make time for the things that are truly important to us. And so, now I've, I've used that excuse. I'm too busy, God. I'm too busy. And if I see I'm cranky around my kids or my wife, and I'm like, man, I really need to spend some time with the Lord, but I'm too busy. It's not an excuse that is sufficient for the mess that I make. It's, it, and so, what could be more important than your life's foundation materials? There's really nothing. And, and you need to figure out, for me, <clears throat> something I've been doing lately is we have these two chairs in our bedroom. And it's the chair that I typically will read my Bible in and spend some time in prayer. But it, it faces in towards our room, and I'm staring at a wall. I don't really like that. And so I had this idea that I'm going to turn my chair around, and I'm going to open up the blinds, and I'm going to look out our window. And there's these juniper trees that are in my neighbor's yard. And I look at the trees, and I look past the trees, and I can see... Sometimes, if it's not smoggy, I could see the hills, and I could, I could see the birds, and I could, just, I could just spend time with the Lord and be refreshed. And it doesn't have to be long. But enough to the point to where I'm able to just kind of rest in Him and to get refreshed, to get help, to get um, direction. But whatever that needs to look like for you, where, where would that be? What's a comfortable place? where you could be undistracted. And some of you moms are like, or dads, you're like, that's impossible. <laughs> a, a place of you know, no distraction doesn't exist in my house. Um, but figure out, where, where can I get 15, 20, 30 minutes alone with God regularly? And begin aiming to not just, not just to read and go, that was nice, that was nice, but instead really to aim to do what God says. Another reason to take it seriously is this. God is holding us accountable to do it. This is very similar. Not just talk about it. See, Matthew 7 is talking about hearing and doing. Matthew 23 is, don't just talk about it, do it. Jesus railed against the religious leaders who 
who knew what the Bible said and would talk about it and discuss it with others, but they neglected to follow it in their personal lives. Look at Matthew 23, verses 1 through 3. Jesus said to the crowds and his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees, those are religious teachers, they sit on Moses' seat. They know Moses' laws. They know, they know the Old Testament. And so he says to the disciples and his crowds, Do and observe whatever they tell you. They know the law. But not the works they do. He said, Do what they... Do what they say, do what they teach, but don't do what they do. For they preach, but they do not practice. Look at the next verse. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and they lay them on people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. What he's saying is he's correcting the the Pharisees' hypocrisy. And he's saying God is not fooled by their religious games. God will cut right through the facade and he looks at whether or not we did what he said. You know, we did the things that we know that he said for us to do. And so later on, in the same chapter, he, he starts picking and he says, they pick and choose the parts that they want to obey. He says, don't do that. Obey what you know God has asked you to do. Obey it. I want to turn a corner and kind of look at some, a summary of reasons of why, why should I trust the Bible enough to stake my life on it? Why should I build my life on this? Here's, here's five very, very important reasons. The first one is this. Jesus said it was God. Now this, at first glance, may just seem like the argument of when your parent says to you, because I said so, that's why. <laughs> so because Jesus said so, you should believe that it's the word of God. But really, that only makes sense if you believe that Jesus, you know, that if you believe what Jesus said about the Bible and that he is actually God himself. It's, it's kind of like a domino effect. Belief in the inspiration of the Bible follows belief that Jesus is the Son of God who died for our sins and was resurrected on the third day. And you can investigate Jesus' um, life, death, resurrection. You can investigate all of those things. And as you do that, that verifies the credibility of the Bible as well. So, but that's the first one that I don't want to brush past. Second is this. Fulfilled prophecy is a strong evidence for its inspiration, fulfilled prophecy, things that were written about in the Bible that actually have happened. That verifies the fact that the book is, is true. The Bible clearly claims to be the inspired word of God. Over 3,000 times you find this phrase, or thus saith the Lord. It's an expression. Thus saith the Lord. You find that. It's kind of like this is what's going to happen. Thus saith the Lord. Those are Oftentimes those are prophetic statements. God is saying, here's what's going to happen. Thus saith the Lord. Well, with those prophecy issues, we can look into history and find out, wow, that, that actually took place in the history of that city, in the history of those, that people, or in the person of Jesus Christ and the fulfillment of God's Messiah. And it states emphatically that the words written by the various authors originate from God himself, that God is the source of Scripture. Now, Jesus, after his resurrection, he started appearing to people and saying, I'm alive. And he would show himself to be alive in bodily form, people would marvel at the fact that he had come back to life. And at one point, there was two of his um, two men that had followed him and believed in him, but they had doubts, and they were walking on this road to Emmaus, a town. And, and they're on this road, and they're talking, and Jesus appears to them and starts walking with them, but they don't recognize that it's Jesus. And, and he has a, strikes up a conversation. You can read about it in Luke 24. But he strikes up a conversation, and he says, what are you guys talking about? And they say, well, we're, we're talking about all that has just unfolded. Jesus, haven't you heard? You know, this, he died, and, and 
he, he came back to life. He was killed. And, all, and, and Jesus then begins to say this. He said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. He's like saying, this is not accidental. You're so slow to believe this stuff was actually going to be fulfilled. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Verse 27, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So he's like, I'm going to take you on a journey through history of what was said and how it would be fulfilled. And it has been fulfilled. And then the early disciples, they, they quoted the Old Testament prophecies in order to show how Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament. And there are hundreds of, of fulfilled prophecies that, that you can look at from the Bible. One example is the prophecy that the Messiah's bones would not be broken. They would not be crushed. And you find that it's a prophecy in Exodus and in Psalm 34. And it talks about the, God's Messiah, wouldn't, his bones would not be crushed. And so when Jesus was crucified it was a common practice for the romans to break the bones of the person who's being crucified in order to suffocate them and speed up the death process and when they came to jesus the roman soldiers they saw he was already dead they pierced his side they saw blood and water a mixture flow out and they didn't break his bones well that fulfilled the prophecy that the messiah's bones would not be crushed but this was a common practice for roman crucifixion to break the bones of the criminal and now there's no way you can predict with the future with that kind of accuracy unless God is the one who's giving you the words to write with the biblical authors. God is the source of Scripture. He breathed into it. Another example is Ezekiel 26. There's a prophecy about the destruction of a city called the city of Tyre, which would be totally leveled and destroyed, and no city would ever be built again on, its, on top of it. It wouldn't be rebuilt. And... This was a bustling, vital city in the days of Ezekiel. And so when he predicted that this destruction would come, it would be like someone saying, hey, Los Angeles is about to be leveled and it won't be rebuilt again. This is what God's saying. You know, It's something of that magnitude in their minds. This is not going to happen. But in the case of Tyre, it did happen. And you can go to the site in Lebanon and you can see nothing but flat rocks where the city of Tyre existed and the, basically those flat rocks had provided the foundation for a city that used to be there but that was never rebuilt. Well, that was fulfilled eventually. But Ezekiel prophesied about it. And, and there is hundreds of accounts of fulfilled Bible prophecy that really weighs in as additional evidence for the Bible's inspiration. On that insert, if you're someone that, that really is fascinated with Bible prophecy, on the back of that insert with Jesus' Old Testament references... I've listed some things on reliability and accuracy, and you can see there's, um, and prophecy in the Bible. You can go to some of these websites to read more about um, the, the hundreds of accounts of fulfilled Bible prophecy. And what that does is it encourages us. It gives us, it lends a lot of strength and confidence to believe in the, in the validity of the, the Bible. Third is the support of our archaeology. Now, this is really, I think, what blows things out of the water in favor of the historicity of the Bible is the archaeology. There's all of this support regarding people, places, culture. One of the most common statements that I hear about the Bible is that it's not accurate and it's full of errors. Um, If you think about it, the Bible references hundreds, if not thousands, of events, places, 
people. There's plenty of room for error. Do you guys hear that? I like timing. I'm going to stay on pace. Um, thank you. Whoever solved that problem. <laughs> now, the Bible, it references thousands of people, places, people and places and events. And so when it comes to history, there is plenty of room for error because of all that it says about real people, real places, real events. And, but there's this remarkable agreement between the historical and the biblical record. Um, one example of that is, is from 2 Samuel chapter 11. There's a group of people called the Hittites. I don't know if you're familiar with that name, the Hittites. But if you've read the story of David and Bathsheba, King David, he, um, he's the king. He sleeps with someone else's wife. He takes someone else's wife and he brings her to his palace. He has sex with her. And she's married to one of David's high-ranking military officials, the king's military officials. Huge betrayal of trust. And, and Well, her husband's name is Uriah the Hittite. He was a great warrior. Uriah the Hittite. Well, the Hittites, this group of people, historians had not been able to find any trace of evidence that the Hittites ever existed. And so when the Bible speaks of the Hittites, those that would want to disprove the Bible would say, look, the Hittites are proof that the, that the Bible is, is just, you know, it's just a big myth. It's just a bunch of stories. Because when they look through histories and other things written in the time period of when the Hittites ought to have been around, they couldn't find any evidence of this people group. And so the, the credibility of the Bible was really called into question because of the lack of, of history there for the Hittites outside of what the Bible said. However, in 1906, archaeologists, they dug up the existence of the Hittites. They found the capital city and 40 other cities that made up the Hittite Empire, which is inside the country of Turkey. Here's a um, picture of some of the ruins, the ancient ruins of the, the Hittite Empire and their capital city. And I could list more examples, but this has happened over and over again in the, in the field of archaeology. A good website is equip.org. I didn't write that on here, but if you're interested in archaeology specifically, you can write down equip.org, and there is, they've got some great articles on the evidence to support the historicity of the Bible. And they look at all the major um, archaeological discoveries. Um, some friends of ours are in this church are going to go, they told us they're going to go see the Dead Sea Scrolls sometime soon. And the Dead Sea Scrolls are on display in L.A., even with the Dead Sea Scrolls, the issue with those, I don't know if you're familiar with the history of it, but the, what the Dead Sea Scrolls did is it helped us be able to have much, much earlier um, um, fragments and manuscripts of the Old Testament than we had. And so uh, before 1947, which is when the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered, before 1947, the earliest Old Testament manuscripts we had were only a thousand years from this time. They were like uh, 945 A.D. was the earliest manuscripts. Those are copies of copies of copies of copies of, of Old Testament. Because from what they had, you have to, in order to preserve something, you got to make copies. Just because time and dust and weather and all that will break things down. And so, <clears throat> the up until 1947, our oldest Old Testament manuscripts was, was um, only about a thousand years ago. And those were speaking of events, of events 
dating, you know, 1,500 years plus before that. And so you've got, there's, there's a big gap. And so when it comes to credibility, that's one of the, that was one of the big issues. Um, how do we know? And the question is, how do we know that things weren't changed? That's another issue. How do we know that what we have here is, is still um, accurate and the same from what God had intended with the, with the Bible in the Old Testament? Well, in 1947, there was a, uh, a sheep herder who, his, this man, his sheep scurried away from him, and he goes looking for his sheep, and he starts throwing rocks into these caves where he thinks his sheep has gone into. And when he throws a rock, he hears like the breaking of something. And as he's throwing rocks, he, he hears he's breaking something inside there. And he goes inside the cave and he discovers there's all these clay jars that housed these ancient scrolls from a community that had lived really close to eleven or 1,200 years before. Um, or, okay, 1947, 2000, sorry. 2,000 to 2,100 years before then. And what they were was they were scrolls. There was a complete scroll, an entire completed scroll of Isaiah that was dated um, 100 to 200 years before Christ. And so this discovery was able to take, you know, the manuscript evidence back over 1,000 years. And as they compare what were in the Dead Sea Scrolls, which date between 100 and 200 B.C., and then they compare that to the stuff they had that's 945 A.D. They see this amazing accuracy in the copies. From, and that, that is remarkable. And in the Dead Sea Scrolls, they have fragments from every book in the Old Testament except for Esther. Um, and they have an entire collection of Isaiah on the scrolls. And they're able to learn more about the Bible times from the Dead Sea Scrolls. But it's amazing. When it comes to archaeology, look at what this man stated. A renowned Jewish expert, archaeological expert, said this. It may be categorically stated that no archaeological discovery has ever contradicted a biblical reference. So you would think that, and I I believe, that many of the archaeologists are looking for the thing that will disprove the Bible. (laughs) But every time they dig something up, it's like, you can imagine, they dust it off. Trats, again? Again? Well, God's preserved his word. It's amazing. It's pretty amazing given the high likelihood for error. And when they look at what's the variations, what's the variant? Is there any real variant? The variants are so minor between the Dead Sea Scrolls and the, um, the they're called the Masoretic texts that are about a thousand years they were found about a thousand years from from where we're at. Um, it's it's amazing the continuity, the consistency, um, the the minor variants that they have found are spelling changes in names, but nothing. As they've looked at any variants that exist, which there are, they don't change any of the meaning, and that's been the issue. Does this change the meaning, or is it a matter of like I spell my name Josh, and some might spell it Yosh? I don't know, but. Uh, with a Y. I mean, uh, there, there's these minor things that they'll notice, but nothing that really brings the authenticity or historicity into question. So that's that's pretty amazing. Another thing is in the literary. It has literary integrity. And with the Bible, although it was written by about 40 human authors, the Bible shows this unique theme 
God linking to humanity and humanity responding to God. All 40 authors gives this gives a glimpse of really a single perspective of God's will and plan for humanity. And there's this amazing cohesiveness to the story of the Bible, written over a period of about 1,600 years by authors with radically different backgrounds, yet consistent internally and thematically. That, that is amazing, that, that God would do this. And as we study it, God has preserved the process, really to see to it that the right message would be passed down from generation to generation, because God is preserving his word. And another concern that crops up related to the Bible is this. How can I be sure that the text of the Bible is accurate since it was written, you know, 2,000 to 3,600 years ago? How do we know that this is really accurate? One of the major tests of authenticity is, of any ancient document is how many handwritten copies or manuscripts are in existence today? How many copies of the originals do we have? Or, you know, and do we, are they all... Do they say the same thing? Do they, do they link up in, in comparison? Um, there are less than ten copies of the works of Plato and Aristotle that, that really are enough to verify their authenticity. So when it comes to the work of Plato and Aristotle, those ten copies are enough to we say, yep, approved. It's legitimate. That's their work. We can study it, work that into our classrooms, teach our kids this stuff. When it comes to the Scripture... It's very, very different. In contrast to that, there are over 14,000 copies of the ancient handwritten manuscripts of the New Testament. Again, it, it just it shatters anything else that we would say, yeah, that's, that's good history. Over 14,000. And so there's no other ancient piece of ancient literature that has this kind of documentation and all of it really is amazing. As you study and as you look at these things, it puts confidence in what we are trying to build our lives upon. The fifth thing is really this. It's personal confirmation of, it, of its inspiration comes as you read it. This is why you should trust it enough to stake your life on what it, what it claims and build your life on it. As you read it, God confirms the truth. Let's face it. All the things we've already looked at is enough solid evidence and reason to trust the Bible and take it seriously. All the prophecy, the support of archaeology, the literary evidence, all that stuff is, is very, very compelling and helpful. But it's, it's, it's really not enough. You have to get into it for yourself. The bottom line is that you will never be convinced until you read it for yourself. And as you read it, you discover that it's incredibly accurate at getting right to the heart of you. It just cuts right through things. It, it reads my life like nothing else. It reads your life like nothing else can. As far as who you are, as how you struggle, describes our relationships. It describes the pressure we experience when we're dealing with difficult people and work. And it just gets right to the heart of who we are. And that's what we, I mean, honestly, that's why many of you, Keep coming back to that as a source. It's because you're like, you know what? God speaks to me through this. And I want to build a life on that. It has an unmistakable ring of authority and inspiration. So I, I just want to challenge you. Begin reading it. Find, find a way to make that happen in your life. Not just to be someone who hears it or who talks about it, but who reads it for yourself and then does it, applies it to your life. And then ask God, God, would you speak to me through this? Would you, would you help me to to live this out. I want to invite our worship team to come back up to the stage. And on the back of your connection card, you'll notice 
we've got a couple next steps from this. And the first one really is a challenge to, to read the Bible more. So for the next 30 to 45, 30 to 40 days, would you read the Bible? I want to suggest Luke or John, especially if it's not something you have been doing as a habit. Read Luke or John because it gets right to the life of Jesus. And from there, maybe you can just keep working your way through the New Testament. But spend some time reading, maybe listening to it. You might read it. You might throw it on your phone. There's a good app called YouVersion. You can listen to it as well. But I encourage you to get into it for yourself and ask God to speak to it, that, that his truth would um, really penetrate the things you're facing right now in your own life. If you need some help with it, um, don't be afraid to ask us for help. Any of our staff members would love to help you with, with getting more clarity or direction on how to read the Bible. If you're in a small group, I would say talk to one of your small group leaders. Um, that's the first next step. Second one is look through the resources available and just do some more study on your own. Try to get answers to these things. Um, in a moment, we're going to be receiving our offering this morning, and so I want to pray as we wrap up. Father, thank you for your word, and thank you for um, how in so many ways your word, its integrity and reliability is confirmed over and over. And Lord, I pray that in this very room there would be that we would be a, a group of people and a church who is building our lives and even our families on your eternal truth and that we would get a firm grip on your truth. Lord, that you'd give us the ability to quiet down the other things in our lives and many of them are extremely important and and we don't you know we know there's a lot going on in our lives and but Lord I pray that even with all of that Lord I pray that we would take the time to build this habit more and more into our lives of getting to know what you have to say to us and, and, and then living this out Lord help us to be faithful to apply the things that we we know right now there are things that you have been saying to us that we've been running away from and, and silencing and lord i pray that we would stop doing that but that we would be people who do your word and that that out of that would really come a blessing and a, and a life of real stability and firmness and so god we we pray that that would be true in all of our lives i pray for each one here and for those that are still sorting through the issues of who you are God, I pray that you continue to do that work that only you can do, which is to call us to yourself, to draw us to yourself. So I pray for just that we would respond to you, God, as you as you do that. Lord, I pray you'd bless our offering. Use it, God, to accomplish um, things that, that we can do together as a church body. Lord, we thank you for the way that you've allowed us to team together to do much more than we could do on our own. Would you bless the offering we're about to receive? And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.